this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and this is your new episode with Will Warren, the co-founder and CEO of ZeroX. As I told Will on the onset of the show, ZeroX was actually one of the reasons why I started BaseLayer back about a year ago, as I wanted to focus on projects that were building the infrastructure to support digital assets and blockchains. And so we talked about ZeroX. ZeroX is a protocol that facilitates the peer-to-peer exchange of Ethereum-based assets. The protocol serves as an open standard and common building block for any developer needing exchange functionality. We talked all about that. We talked about their four different product lines, Asset Swapper, ZeroX Instant, ZeroX Launch Kit, and their protocol governance. We also talked about some of the use cases. We talked a lot about gaming. Uh, as everyone knows who's been listening, I've been very keen on what's happening with the gaming world as it relates to digital assets. We also talked about uh, their mission statement, and we talked a little bit about more philosophical approaches to where and what is going to cause adoption of blockchains, We also talked a lot about some commonalities. We talked about Tesla and their evolutionary approach from the Roadster to the Model S to the Model 3 and how that all worked out and how that might have a relation to things happening within blockchains. Uh, We also talked a lot about uh, how some of these different aspects of blockchains can be really associated with real world things. And I think we need to try to uh, create more of those metaphors. And so we had a really great conversation. I enjoyed it thoroughly. And so remember, nothing on base layer is investment advice. And so please do your own research. And on the flip side, you're going to hear an amazing conversation with Will Warren, the co-founder and CEO of ZeroX. Enjoy. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I have Will Warren, the CEO and co-founder of ZeroX with me today. Will, how are you? Good. Thank you for having me. So as I told Will before, I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. Um, Will doesn't know this, but uh, ZeroX and the infrastructure that they've been building was actually one of the impetuses for me to start Base Layer. Um, I wanted to focus on infrastructure, and I wanted to focus on things that were really building the foundations of digital assets and blockchains. So I'm really excited about this. So Will, if you could, uh, for all those that have listened before, what I'd like to do is before we go into ZeroX and all the great things that you guys are doing there, I'd like to give the listeners a little background on you, what you did before ZeroX, and actually want to talk about why you started ZeroX. What was the the rationale, and why did you get involved in the world of blockchains and crypto and digital assets in the first place? So with that, go ahead. Awesome. Yeah, thank you, David. Uh, So I started out on a completely different career track. I was uh, more interested in in research and academia. I was doing engineering at UC San Diego um, and, you know, doing undergraduate research in things like robotics and computer vision. And then uh, I spent a year and a half at Los Alamos National Lab doing like applied physics research and went back to UCSD to start a PhD program that I ended up actually dropping out to, to focus on Ethereum. Um, but uh, I, I had been following Bitcoin since like pretty early on, I think. I, I 
like heard about it on Hacker News and seemed like really interesting technology and continue to follow along. It didn't necessarily seem like it had many use cases other than, you know, darknet markets and stuff mm-hmm. like in the in the very early days, but the technology itself is really interesting. Right. And so uh my one of one of the things that really drew me into the crypto space uh was that my wife, who who is my girlfriend at the time, Linda Shea, joined Coinbase early on. And just through Linda being at Coinbase and, and like kind of already having like a natural interest in Bitcoin, uh just became much more enamored with the crypto space and following it much more closely. Mm-hmm. And then uh, finally, Ethereum came out, and um, I, you know, became really fascinated with the technology and started like hacking, hacking on smart contracts in my spare time in the evenings. And eventually, I just kind of lost interest in everything else, uh, and and decided that like I had to focus on Ethereum, right? And and I guess like the like underlying motivation for that was that uh, in you know the research that I had been doing in the years leading up to you know dropping out of my PhD program, you'd be working extremely hard on these interesting problems, but the potential impact of the research wasn't always very high. Mm-hmm. So you might spend six months working on a problem and then you know, there's maybe like a few dozen people in the world that would be impacted by this work. Right. And Ethereum just seemed like this like sandbox for experimenting with like a new, new financial systems. And it, it seemed like the potential impact of Ethereum would be global and, you know, potentially is like as, as large or significant as like the internet. Right. Um, so yeah, I, that's kind of what drew me in. Yeah, it's we've talked about this before on the show. Was that in you know my opinion, and I think it's shared you know across the board that Bitcoin is a store of value. It's a legacy replacement for gold. It is something that, like the internet, provides the ability to transfer assets like no other capacity, no other technological innovation provided us. But Ethereum, as you pointed out, you know, with the ability of having a Turing complete system that has the ability to have state and has the ability to do things like smart contracts, provides a different lens and a different capacity than Bitcoin does in its core uh, capacities. And so I agree with that. And I also think it's funny that during your weekends that you were hacking smart contracts when most people are just Netflixing and chilling. So I think uh, that's a testament to your work ethic Um, and also your curiosity. So I really find that interesting. So ZeroX is a protocol that facilitates the peer-to-peer exchange of Ethereum-based assets. The protocol serves as an open standard and common building block for any developer needing exchange functionality. So like I've been doing recently, ELI5, how if you had to ELI five zero X for people out there, uh, you know, as ELI five means, explain it to me like I'm five. You know, I'm five years old. I'm you know just experiencing the world. If you had to, how would you explain zero X to someone who doesn't really understand this world uh, that 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 uh, that much right now? 
Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think like the best example of a protocol and, and what it means is to tie it to something people are familiar with. And so I think maybe the best example here is email. Everyone is familiar with email and use it daily. Uh, but under the surface, email relies on a protocol, SMTP. And uh, one of the things that makes a protocol valuable is that it's an agreed upon standard that allows for uh, anyone to kind of create their own client and ensure that everyone, you know, is speaking the same language. So, you know, if you have a Gmail account, uh, it, it, you can still send emails back and forth with your friend who has a Hotmail account or an AOL email account. And the reason is because, uh, you know, Gmail, Hotmail, Yahoo, AOL, all of these different clients or these different applications are using the same protocol that is SMTP. Um, and so that, you know, the benefit of having uh, an open standard uh, is that it allows for interoperability. Mm -hmm. And so in the same way that SMTP allows people to, you know, have a standard for, uh, you know, uh, for sending emails, the ZeroX protocol uh, establishes a standard for uh, how to, you know, structure an offer to exchange digital assets. And so, you know, you can think of, of a 0x order as just this data packet. It's just mm -hmm. this, this chunk of data that's cryptographically signed. But the data within that, that packet is related to the trade that you know someone is proposing to take place. So right. it has information like the two different assets that are you know going to be traded, the the price, and uh, other information that is relevant to that exchange. Basically, it just lets everyone talk to each other, you know, in a, in a manner of form. Um, you know, the the idea of interoperability is fascinating. Something that we have touched on the show before and something that of course would love to get your th you know, thoughts on as we are looking into 2020 and the state of state of interoperability. But why don't we go into the different products that zero X currently has? So there are four, if I'm not mistaken, the first one is asset swapper. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah. So asset swapper, uh, addresses a use case that is really exciting and, and is actually very much related to interoperability between different smart contracts. Um, and so uh, in the Ethereum space, one of the concepts that people are, are very excited about is, is uh, and often refer to this, is, is composability. So the ability to take different systems of smart contracts, like building blocks or Legos, and to uh, kind of... Uh, put them together in new and interesting ways and, and unlock new types of functionality. And, you know, for developers, being able to put these building blocks together is not always super intuitive or easy. Uh, so what Asset Swapper does is it's a library or it's a tool that makes it very easy for anyone that's creating their own Ethereum smart contracts to interact with and programmatically exchange uh, tokens, you know, using 0x protocol. 
Are there any current um, use cases like in DeFi that that is applicable to? Oh yeah, absolutely. So there, there's a number of different, you know, interesting DeFi applications that require uh, programmatic liquidity. So for example, like uh, set, set protocol is, is creating uh, these kind of these different, uh, I guess you could call them like uh, bundles of different types of assets mm-hmm. and or almost like little portfolios that programmatically rebalance. And in order to uh, maintain specific uh, ratios of assets within those sets, they need a way to programmatically access liquidity uh, from the set smart contract. And so you can imagine... Um, you know, asset swapper being a way for uh, this set smart contract to programmatically access liquidity and kind of maintain uh, the right ratio of assets within a set. Right. So let's also there, as I mentioned, there are four products that you and I air quotes products, um, solutions, if you will, or different things that you've been building there. Zero X Instant. What is that? So Zero X Instant uh, is it's just sort of a embeddable widget or uh, yeah, I guess a widget is probably the best term that allows you to instantly purchase tokens from any web page uh, and without having to leave the web page. So you can, um, you know, other third-party developers can embed 0x instant into their web page to help help their users uh, gain access to tokens like at the, you know, at the time in which those tokens are required. Mm -hmm. So a perfect example would be uh, foam. So, so foam is uh, another project in the Ethereum space. uh, And in order to interact with their DAP, you need to have foam tokens. Uh, And it's, you know, uh, asking their users to go to a third-party exchange, deposit their crypt, you know, deposit some ether and purchase foam tokens and withdraw them. That would just be extremely tedious, um, and you know, probably lead to very few people following through with interacting with the DAP. That's so instead, right. they you know they have Zerox Instant embedded within their DAP, and at the exact moment that a user needs to acquire foam tokens to interact with the DAP, uh, 0x instant pops up and there you are, you're getting like the best price for foam tokens uh, immediately. I think a way that, so for people that might be getting, you know, lost in some of the, the kind of nuances here, I think, you know, if this is because I've played with obviously all of these things. And so with gaming, which we're going to talk about more about soon, you know, if you play some of the games out there, you have to go to MetaMask, you have to have Ethereum, you have to have ETH within your MetaMask, and you have to do all sorts of different things. It's about a three or four step process uh, for anyone who wants instantaneous gratification. You know, it's basically null and void. They're not going to do that. And so I remember back in the day where, you know, and I'm not hopefully dating myself, but if you went to a website and you wanted to buy something, it wasn't instantaneous where they were going to take your credit card. You would actually have to go to your bank's website and have to do things like that. There would be links all over the place. It would be hyperlinked here and there. Um, It would open new web pages. And then all of a sudden, everything became kind of interoperable. Everything became on the same page. And so people who just wanted that instantaneous gratification of just using the app or going on the platform could do that. And so, again, you know, kind of dating back to the 90s of the Internet, 
where I think, you know, things like this are really important because it keeps people on the page. It keeps them interacting with the application, the platform that they're trying to use instead of what's, you know, kind of happened over the last year or two where you have to have four or five different tabs open or different applications open to be able to use something very simply. And so really That's interesting right. in that. I think uh, maybe Stripe is like a good analogy here it is, yeah, I think Stripe might be the, you know, our plaid might be the different companies that came in and made uh, payments, like in-page payments, mm-hmm. very seamless. That's probably a very, yeah, a good analogy. Yep. Um, and so moving forward to the third one, Zero X Launch Kit. What is that? So Launch Kit uh, makes it very easy for any developer to spin up their own marketplace for digital assets. And so so Zero X is a protocol. It it specifies a standard way of uh, you know communicating and facilitating exchange of digital assets. And uh, you know, over the last three years, a number of developers have created uh, marketplaces that rely on Zero X for the exchange functionality. And each you know these marketplaces are developing their their entire kind of front end and user experience from scratch. And it, it's a lot of work. Um, and sometimes, you know, having uh, fine-grained control over what the marketplace looks and feels like makes a lot of sense for a developer and, and they want that control. But in a lot of cases, uh, you know, it might be, let's say, like an uh, indie game developer. Mm-hmm. They just want the ability to spin up a good looking marketplace for their uh, digital video game items. And they don't want to have to build the entire marketplace in front end from scratch. So what zero X launch kit does is it provides, you know, an out of the box marketplace for either, you know, fungible tokens like liquid tokens, like, uh, you know, stable coins or stock, stock tokens, um, synthetic stocks, or there's also a launch kit for non-fungible tokens. So things like trading cards and uh, crypto kitties, stuff like that. Very interesting. I, I, again, using analogies, you know, there was a time and a place, and again, dating myself, that if you wanted to build a website, you had to know HTML, you had to know, you know, basically you had to maybe know Python, you had to know some of the, you know, kind of front end systems and the back end systems to design things. Um, And then came along a company called Wix. And they said, here, go to our website. And here's everything laid out for you. You don't have to know how to code. And you can build beautiful websites in five minutes. And so I think something like LaunchKit is very similar. Whereas if you don't have the development power or the prowess you actually can get you know a head start uh, because you guys have laid everything out like that. Is that kind of a, a good analogy? Yeah, that's exactly right. So yeah. again, these are items that I think will help further adoption um, and will help the barriers to entry going forward into 2020. So I'm super interested in this. Moving to the fourth one is 0x protocol governance. And as people know, I have been super interested in governance. The idea of getting different entities, different people, uh, different groups to cooperatively work together that they don't know each other. There is obviously this notion of trustlessness. Um, They've probably never met each other, but they're all working together 
uh, in a manner to get these networks functional. Can you talk to us about the protocol governance side? Yeah, definitely. So, so governance has been a core part of the project, actually going all the way back to the very beginning. Um, so, you know, before uh, my co-founder Amir Bandiali and I were designing ZeroX as an open protocol um, for anyone to build their own marketplace uh, and kind of like as an open standard, we were actually building our own kind of for-profit decks. Uh, it would be something that we own. Uh, it was our own kind of venture. And the idea, you know, we, we built this, uh, what we thought was like a very kind of optimal smart contract architecture for exchange. And one of, one of the key uh, features of the design was that it was upgradable. So uh, we could, you know, we could easily upgrade the system to support uh, new token standards or to uh, react to changes lower in the technology stack. So, so you know, uh, changes to the uh, Ethereum virtual machine, uh, et cetera. So and back, back when we were simply designing this for ourselves, the idea of, um, you know, who has the ability to decide on upgrades to the system of smart contracts when it has access to a significant amount of digital assets, um, you know, as kind of the sole proprietors of, of a decentralized exchange, you know, we were comfortable having that responsibility with some backstops. But as the project transitioned from a for-profit venture to a an open protocol that could be used by any project for any use case, uh, the question of who has the ability to upgrade this system of smart contracts, uh, you know, it becomes a lot more nuanced. So an ad hoc question, I'm curious to get your opinions on this, and then we're going to talk about some use cases and some other things about zero X. I have heard where there has been some speculation that 2020 will be the year of the Dow. Now, as we're talking about governance, do you think that is applicable? Do you think that 2020 might be the year of the Dow? Yeah, I yeah, I mean, I, I was actually pretty. Um, I felt pretty, uh, you know, excited about 2019 being a year for for uh, governance evolving and and becoming more popular in the Ethereum space. And it seems like it's it started to happen this year already. Uh, with Moloch DAO, I think there's like a marketing DAO for Ethereum uh, and a lot more experimentation. But yeah, I mean, I think it's just going to, you know, decentralized governance is going to continue to be an area of innovation for, for years to come. And hopefully 2020 is a, you know, a big year for, for making progress in this area. Right. So in your use cases, as I mentioned before, um, and I'll just read this out. In addition, ZeroX can be integrated into any existing application where exchange is a feature, not the core purpose of the application. These applications include gaming or games with in-game currencies or items. This is something I want to stick on a little bit because I've spoken a lot about the relationship between digital assets and in-game currencies like V-Bucks and PUBG and how it's my observation that hundreds of millions of people and typically in the demographic around 15 to 30 age you know right now are playing these games daily we've seen the expansion of esports into 
a league that is going to outstretch from, you know, the the watchers of NHL and some other sports leagues here in the United States. It is a massive, massive operation. And so I would love to kind of get your your kind of your opinions and thoughts um, in terms of use cases with games. What's the state of, of games in Zero X? How are games in Zero X interchanged and married together? And what's the future there? Yeah. So we, you know, I, I've personally been really excited about digital game items being, uh, you know, basically owned by the users and tradable for, for a long time. And it, it feels like there have been some early experiments with, with, um, you know, people building games on top of Ethereum and just, uh, in the last couple of weeks, actually, it's been really exciting uh, to see one game in particular has, has uh, you know, basically minted all of these trading cards on Ethereum and unlocked them for trading. Uh, so, so a little bit of background. So, so Gods Unchained is uh, a trading card game. It's very similar to Hearthstone, uh, which has, you know, Hearthstone is made by Blizzard. It has a, a huge user base. Um, and one of the issues with Hearthstone, or, you know, I guess it's debatable whether it's an issue or not, is that uh, as you play, you accumulate cards and you can purchase cards, but once you own them, you can't sell them or trade them with other people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Gods Unchained is, uh, you know, a third, you know, they're, they're a different developer and they're creating their own game that is, you know, it's somewhat similar to Hearthstone, but I think it has some interesting mechanics built in. And the trading cards are actually ERC-721 tokens on Ethereum. And so they, uh, I think they started publicly announcing the project uh, maybe nine or 12 months ago Mm -hmm. and started selling these trading cards um, in order to, uh, build a user base, but also I think in part to help fund development of the game itself. And in the past nine to twelve months, they've you know launched the game in beta. They've gathered user feedback, and um, basically they figured out how to balance the game so that none of the cards were too powerful or anything like that. Hmm. But. Uh, just two weeks ago, what they did is they they distributed these cards that people had purchased, over 6 million cards, and they finally unlocked these cards for trading. So mm-hmm. um, they determined that, you know, the game was balanced. They didn't need to change the cards in the future, which would, you know, in turn change their value. Uh, and so they, they unlocked the cards for trading. And and actually, we, we've seen just a massive explosion of trading activity on ZeroX from people um, buying and selling Gods Unchained trading cards. And uh, so there are, the Gods Unchained official marketplace is running on ZeroX. And then there are also third-party uh, marketplaces as well that, that are extremely popular. I think looking it up now, yeah, over two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in in tra- in you know God's Unchained trading cards has has um, gone through the protocol in the last seven days. Wow. Yeah. Um, 
Do you think there will be a time and a place where Fortnite or some of the other larger game companies are going to ring their bell and say, why don't we start looking at this? Because it's revenue for them, too. If, I, if I'm not mistaken, you know, they're making revenue from, you know, these these tokens and the kind of the collectibles. You know, would it not also behoove them to create like a trading exchange for that as well, too? I I'm not sure. So I think one of the reasons why uh, the large game developers put so many constraints over their item marketplaces is because, it, you know, by having this control and, and kind of limiting the flow of assets, digital assets, mm-hmm. I think that's a way for them to actually maximize the amount of value that they can uh, derive from their user base. And so I, I could actually see a smaller kind of new indie developer teams instead tokenizing their video game assets Mm. uh, for two reasons. So first, um, you know, the large game platforms like Steam, uh, you know, they they have a lot of control over which video games they're willing to support. Uh, And in this kind of, you know, constrains these game developers in, in terms of what they're able to create and share with the world. Um, so if there was a way for game developers to monetize their video game without having to go through one of these large platforms, then I think they'll do that. And, uh, by tokenizing video game items, that's one way for them to kind of, uh, have a, a way to, yeah, you know, raise capital to develop the game or just to have a healthy game economy without having to rely on Steam or another large gaming platform. Right. Uh, and yeah, I, I think like the larger kind of AAA game publishers of that, that we're familiar with today, I don't think they necessarily have a large incentive to, to open up their economies because it, it would likely lead to, yeah, some of their revenues kind of leaking out and away from their platform. So scarcity, <laughs> the idea of scarcity comes again. It's interesting because everyone obviously talks about the idea of scarcity within the Bitcoin camp with the 21 million hard cap. And it seems that, you know, scarcity as well as with V-Bucks and PUBG might also play into that too. So interesting to hear. Um, moving forward, a few other different things I wanted to touch on. So the 0x order message format is rigid enough to enforce the conditions under which an order maker would feel comfortable entering into a trade and yet flexible enough to represent many different kinds of trades. So currently, 0x supports trading ERC-20 tokens, NFTs, which are ERC-721s, and we are constantly adding support for new token standards and different ways to trade them thanks to the modular nature of 0x's design. Can you unpack that a little bit more? What does that mean? Yeah, so you can think of of 0x, uh, the, the smart contracts that are actually settling trades and moving assets between the counterparties, you can think of it as like a pipeline that's broken into segments. And these orders, these cryptographically signed chunks of data, they enter one side of the pipeline. And on the other end of the pipeline, uh, the assets are moved between the two counterparties. And what this allows us to do is it allows us to add new segments that support new types of functionality. And it also allows us to replace existing segments. Uh, it, it, you know, it, and I think, a, you know, 
to provide like a more concrete example of why you might want to do this. So Ethereum's upcoming Istanbul hard fork is actually going to reprice some of the uh, opcodes. So, so doing certain things on Ethereum is going to become more expensive. And this is actually going to break many smart contracts that are that already exist on Ethereum today. They're, they're working today. The moment the hard fork goes through, they stop working. You can't use them anymore. And so having the ability to upgrade this, you know, upgrade your system uh, allows you to prevent or avoid all of the different markets that are relying on the system from coming to a halt and having to kind of bootstrap the liquidity from scratch all over again. Can I give you an example? I think that might be germane. So there was a time and place where if someone wanted to buy Google shares, they would literally just go and buy G-O-O-G and that would be it. They would have Google shares. And then all of a sudden they went through a restructuring, they became Alphabet, and then there were A-class and B-class shares. And so when they went through that whole name change and they went through that whole restructuring, people were still able to buy Google shares and still able to participate in the capital market. So it's kind of similar in that sense, yes? I would say that there's definitely, yeah, there's definitely a strong analogy there. And, and I think there's also some other, yeah, there are some other interesting uh kind of parallels as well. Uh, like for example, uh, you know, smart contract. Well, yeah. So, so smart contract wallets are becoming, uh, more popular nowadays. So I guess, uh, you know, if, if you're familiar with using, uh, dApps, I'm sure you are, David, uh, you know, you might have MetaMask and, in your browser, it's an extension, and you you just kind of can interact with with uh, adapt through your MetaMask. Uh, but MetaMask is kind of limiting in terms of what you can do because uh, MetaMask accounts aren't smart contracts; they're actually uh, accounts, which are which are different in the Ethereum land. And so, you know, building a system of smart contracts, building like uh, an exchange protocol that assumes everyone is using an account would make it challenging for uh, people that are, are transitioning to using uh, smart contract wallets from participating in the markets. So, you know, having the ability to kind of support new usage patterns that aren't exactly easy to anticipate uh beforehand, you know, is another reason why having the ability to upgrade the system is really important. Right. And so I think one of the last things I want to talk about, and this gets a little into the philosophical, but as many people know, I've gotten more into the philosophical these days when it comes to digital assets and blockchains. This is part of your mission statement, and I really enjoy this, and I want your opinions on this. So I'm going to read it out, and then we have, I have a question here. So the primary determined of an individual's economic freedom and opportunity in life boils down to the geographic region they are born into. The lucky find themselves in a country where the government provides the populace with a voice, an education, uncensored access to the internet, sound economic policies, and a minimal level of government corruption. Simply put, most people are not this lucky. Blockchains give us an opportunity to leave the geographic lottery behind by establishing an open and globally accessible financial system that acts as a potent equalizing force for the world. So that's part of your mission statement. 
I want to kind of dig into that a little bit. Do you think a reason why we might not be seeing massive kind of across the board adoption in, and I hate to use these terminologies because this is what we're given, but there's first world and third world countries. I don't really love those categorized uh, statements, but this is what we have today. But do you think the reason why first world countries like the U.S. and others have been viewed as a lesser probable and kind of first adopter of blockchains and digital assets because of this, of your mission statement? Uh, so I, I actually believe the, the opposite. Um, and it's a little bit counterintuitive. Um, but, but I think blockchain, uh, you know, crypto, I, I think we have to go through a toy phase. And maybe like the best analogy uh, is is like Tesla. Mm. So uh, Elon Musk, when uh, you know pushing Tesla forward, his strategy was you know it would be impossible to go directly to electronic vehicles for everyone. Um, the technology just isn't there yet. It has to improve over time. So what Tesla did is the first product they built was the Roadster. And it, it's this fancy sports car. It's, it's definitely geared towards, um, you know, people with more money than they need. And it allowed, uh, it allowed Tesla to kind of drive a wedge in the market and sell kind of, you know, sell, sell this first pr product to a very targeted uh, audience. Mm -hmm. And it, and while, you know, while they were selling this Roadster, they were using the money they, they generated from it to continue to double down on R&D and to, you know, find ways to reduce costs in manufacturing. And then they created the Model S, which is still a luxury vehicle, but it's not like a sports car. It's like a Com comparable to like, you know, maybe a Mercedes or BMW or something like that. I don't know. I'm not like a car guy really, but, um, I think it's fair. And, and they continued this pattern of, of, uh, you know, working down from really, really expensive to kind of more, uh, kind of mainstream product that is accessible to a larger, uh, segment of the population. And, and so, I'm not sure where they're at today, but I, I believe that ultimately their goal is to create an electronic vehicle that, or in, an electric vehicle that's that's for the mass market and that is you know thirty thousand dollars a year or something, and and so, you know, I, I think for for crypto and DeFi, I think we probably have to go through the same toy phase where uh, the the early use cases that are going to be popular are going to probably be. Um, you know, less meaningful uh, when it comes to global impact, but the product market fit, or you know, the the adoption that is generated in the in the toy phase is going to be used to fund further research and development, and uh, you know, it'll give the regulatory landscape time to catch up to the technology, and eventually, over time, you know, we'll have this this kind of tokenized world where all value can flow freely. Uh, the only, I think the only way to avoid this toy phase is for an entity like Libra potentially who, you know, Facebook has access to 2 billion people all over the world and, you know, they could potentially roll out, uh, 
some sort of you know crypto network that you know immediately provides access to wide swaths of the population and they don't they don't need the toy fades at all because they could just roll it out immediately right whether or not that solution would be as decentralized as we would like is i i remains to be seen um but i think that would probably be the only way to avoid this kind of toy phase that'll that'll ultimately you know allow for another decade or two decades of R&D in, in improving the technology. It's interesting. I haven't heard anyone talk about it that way. And it makes sense. The Roadster to the Model S to the Model 3, you know, working out the kinks, you know, I've talked about moving from beta to testnet to mainnet. It's very similar where you work out the kinks in the Roadster. You make sure, obviously, it's a very limited supply of them. Um, it takes quite a long time to actually build them. So not many people get them and you make sure that you work out the kinks. You constantly, you know, talk to those users and then you roll out your next one, which was the, the S and hopefully by that time, most of the kinks have been ironed out. But as you're innovating, as you're continuing on, you obviously continue to observe. And then, you know, you have the model three, which is, you know, as you mentioned about 30 to $35,000, and much more economically uh, viable to a larger population out there. It's still obviously expensive for many people, but uh, as opposed to about $125,000 vehicle, yes, I can see that. So super interesting. I never thought of it, the evolution like that. And so I really appreciate those thoughts. Um, as we're wrapping up, as most people know who come on the show uh, and listen, I like to get a little bit into your into your headspace. Um, and um, I imagine you and Linda probably share a lot of the books that, you know, are being read in that household. And I've always uh, had an affinity for the books that Linda is reading. So if there's anything that you've read recently uh, that resonated with you, uh, would love to hear about that and why. And then the other thing that we like to also find out is music. Anything that you listen to on the music front uh, while you're working or traveling, uh, anything that gets you, you know, in the in the zone, if you will. Um, so anything, any books that you've read recently and the music that you like? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So the last book I read uh, relatively recently was Red Notice. And this is it's a really interesting uh, nonfiction book about uh, it, an investor. Uh, I'm, I'm not like, not like a big kind of investor kind of finance dude at all but the story is is fascinating it's about this investor that um starts kind of exploring uh the markets in eastern europe and russia uh right when the soviet union dissolved and Hmm. when it's bizarre so the soviet union dissolved and they had all of this industry uh, basically their entire economy, they had to figure out how to divvy it up and give it, you know, transfer that from the state, the USSR to, you know, who, who the people that are there, the people that are living there. Right. And, and, you know, it, it describes how almost an entire country, the entire industry underlying this, this country was more or less like transferred to, like 26 individual people mm. uh, who went on to be, you know, they're the oligarchs or whatever that people talk about today. Right. And it, it talks about kind of 
the the experiences this investor went through, um, you know, participating in that market in the in the very early days when when the USSR had had dissolved and was transitioning to, uh, yeah, the kind of countries that came after, and it was very fascinating. And just for anyone who looks for that book, Red Notice, I believe, is by Bill Browder. And if if this does not get you guys, then I don't know what will. A true story of high finance, murder, and one man's fight for justice. If that doesn't read like something that would be made into a movie one of these days, I don't know what is. Yeah, it's insane. It's insane. And and some of the things that happen in that book are, you know, still playing out on like a global stage today. It's pre- pretty interesting. Wow. Um, and then as far as music, hmm, I listen to like everything. Uh, but let's see. What are the things that I've listened to most recently? Uh, okay. Mac Miller. Okay. Uh, Hurt Feelings. Okay. Not familiar with that. Yeah. It's a song called Hurt Feelings. It's by the artist Mac Miller. That's the last song I've been obsessed with. I don't know why. Uh, But yeah, I, I listen to all sorts of music from electronic music to jazz to, yeah. Love it. So where can people find out more about zero X and get involved? Uh, So check out our website, zero X.org. Follow us on Twitter at zero X project. And we have, uh, we have actually like a really good YouTube page uh, with a bunch of videos that dig into how our smart contracts work in like layman's terms and explain how they all fit together. And uh, yeah, we put a lot of effort into those videos. So if, if you're interested in like, learning a little bit more about how things work technically, but without being, uh, you know, like a deep technical expert or anything like that. I I think like our YouTube's a really great spot to learn more. Awesome. So this was Will Warren, the co-founder and CEO of Zero X. As I mentioned, the onset of the show, uh, Zero X was one of the reasons why I actually started Layer. So this was an honor and a pleasure getting a chance to talk with you, Will. And hopefully we can catch up with you in a few months and see how things are progressing. Thanks a lot, Will. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on base layer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, market commentary, videos, and more.